Welcome to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. This week, Pastor Jared teaches on the book of 2 Timothy. For more information, visit our website at tulsabible.org. Um, back in the early settling of America, there, was, there were several famous people that uh, took part in establishing kind of the frontier movement. One of those guys is, is a pretty interesting character. You read about him a little bit in our history books and, and for, folklore and, and different things that have come about. Uh, some of you guys would probably know this man from Kentucky. Uh, his goes by the name of Daniel Boone, right? If, if you don't know anything about Daniel Boone, at least you know the song from the show that they made about him, right? Daniel Boone was a man, he was a, he was a what? Big man, just emphasize that big over and over again. Um, and y'all have probably all heard famous stories about Daniel Boone. One of the most famous really stood out to me here recently and it, it hasn't left me. Um, Daniel Boone was a, was a craftsman and in his, behind his property is a, a work shed that he put up to do a lot of his own woodwork and craftsmanship, things that he liked to do to spend his time uh, constructing materials. After all, he, he hacked his way out of the wilderness and figured out how to make a living of it. Um, apparently, neighbors worked, heard him working behind his house in the woodshed and would stop by frequently to see what he, was, what he was all about, what he was creating back there. And a few years before his death, Daniel Boone built his own casket, his own coffin. Um, his custom-made cherry wood coffin, beautiful, polished, handcrafted. When he had finished it, he decided that the best place to store it was in the room of his cabin. In fact, he put it underneath his bed in his cabin, which, you know, might, that might seem a little disturbing uh, to you if you're tracking along with me. It's disturbing to me, okay? You guys see me with a casket under my master bed, uh, you know, you can just test me for all kinds of things that are going to be wrong with me. Um, perhaps the most disturbing thing about this was his friends would often stop by at his house and hear him whistling a tune as he polished his casket over and over again. Every once in a while, he would actually get into his casket, uh, probably to make sure he still fit in it. At the time, they were, they were small caskets. And so maybe in old age, he was concerned about that. I'm not too sure. The most disturbing of all was every so often, his kids and his grandkids would come by and they'd find him sleeping in his casket. And if you find Papa sleeping in his master bedroom in the casket, and you know, a couple questions might come into mind if you're a, if you're a grandkiddo. A, a little bit more morbid, if you ask me, all right? Um, Daniel Boone was a man who thought a lot about his death down to the point of his casket. Uh, one of my best friends was uh, uh, this, this guy that I uh, met his fiance, met his future wife at seminary in New Testament Greek class. Found out that his father-in-law was a pastor, a pastor of a small church. And through the life of his ministry, he did a lot of funerals in a small church. And uh, he tells a story about one of the most memorable funerals that he ever had. Um, back a little bit years prior, it was there was more tradition uh, in small town funerals. Things happened that just about every funeral was, was about the same way. And one of the things that 
families typically did, and now it's not as common, uh, but you would, families would bring in the casket from the funeral home and put it right down in front in the center of the church. And the funeral home would take care of it. Um, they would have it up there for, some families would have it up there for viewing. Uh, typically they would close the, the top of the casket for the service. Uh, but for the most part, the casket was out there. And a lot of times at the end of the service, what would happen is the, the funeral home would come back in and they'd usher all the attendants, all the guests out of the service and the family would stay in the room. And funeral home would come back and they would open the top of the casket. There was one last time to, to view your loved one, your family member, uh, before the casket was finally closed for the last time. And there was like in Kansas, they made a, they called it the, uh, the closing of the casket. Somebody would come by, they'd make sure uh, the wife of the deceased or the closest family member was ready to close the casket and they would come by. And when you close the thing, I mean, you could hear it click and you would hear it lock. And that was, that was the last time it would be opened. And it was just, it was just a tradition. Uh, that's, that's typically what they did. Well, for this one funeral, it meant two things. During the service, the funeral home would bring out the casket and they'd put it on this cart with wheels so you could push it around a little bit easier. Um, the other thing it meant was that during the service, the casket was closed, but it wasn't fully locked, right? So you could, they could come back at the end and open it up very easily. Uh, so it happened during the service. This is, this is terrible. Um, two of the wheel mechanisms on the cart broke. And it sent the cart, did one of these numbers, just like that. And the casket came up and it hit the floor. And as it hit the floor, the lid of the casket opens up and the body came tumbling out on the floor of the, of the sanctuary. He said it was the most uh, frightening terrifying thing that has ever happened in a funeral service. He didn't know what to do. Uh, the funeral home guys came by and they figured out how to get the body back in the casket. But for a moment there was like, uh, are you still dead? Are you, what's going on here, Lord? Are you doing something amazing in this, in this work here? It was, it was crazy. And so it just left this memory with him. Every funeral that he did from that moment on, he made sure that lid of the casket was down a little bit tighter. It was a little bit more secure. Um, all that to say, whether you're Daniel Boone or you're a pastor performing a funeral service, the Bible would say that it's wisdom to think about the day of your death, that it's actually wise to consider that our days are numbered, they're limited, we're finite and we are not in control of the day we come on this earth and we are not in control of the day that we leave it. Second uh, Timothy chapter four, that's exactly what Paul was doing as he finishes this letter to Timothy. He was thinking about his uh, imminent death, his coming death. And what, did, what he did is when those thoughts came into his mind in second Timothy four, nine through 22, at the end of his life, Paul thought about two things. He thought about his friends, and he thought about an enemy. And this whole letter, this personal letter to Timothy ends with comments about all of his friends in ministry. The theme of this entire last section of 2 Timothy is marked by a repeated phrase. Look down at verse nine. 
2 Timothy 4, verse nine, do your best to come to me soon. Look at verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. Uh, Paul not only wanted Timothy to come see him, but he wanted to see him soon, very quickly. Uh, We have to conclude that Paul's friendship with Timothy was of utmost importance to him. There was a a relationship here that uh, was so deep, was so tight that he wanted to see his best friend at least one more time. We've done this at TBC before, but here's what I wanna do because this is so important and it's something that's getting lost in our culture uh, pretty quick these days. I wanna talk about friendship. I'm gonna talk about ministry friendships, but even more general than that, Christian friendships. Uh, What makes for a good friendship? C.S. Lewis by far has one of the most profound works that I've ever read on friendship. It's uh, his book, The Four Loves, where he traces four different Greek words for love and one chapter entirely is devoted to this idea of Philadelphia, brotherly love, like a friendship love. Um, men with men, women with, with, with women. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, friendship is unnecessary like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself. For God did not need to create it. It, speaking of friendship, has no survival value. Rather, it's one of those things which gives value to survival. Um, In his last days, Paul wanted to see his friend. And this passage is gonna tell us two things. Number one, friends walk side by side with one another. Number two, friends see the same truth as one another. Verses 14 through 22 at the end there. Proverbs 18, 24 says this, a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A lot of us probably have acquaintances. Timothy to Paul was a friend, a tight, a good, and even a best friend. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, friends walk side by side. Look at verse nine. I'm gonna go through verse 13 again. Do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You might pay a special attention to that little phrase there about Demas. Uh, It's not typical when you read the end of Paul's letters at all. He really does stand out here. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Um, This last session begins and Paul expresses a sense of urgency. Do Do your best to come quickly come soon, your translations are gonna say. Part of the urgency was certainly due to the time of year. Okay, there's probably winter is setting in in Rome. It would have been much harder to travel. It probably would have hindered Timothy's ability to get to Paul quickly. And so he says to him, hey, I'm cold. I need this cloak. I need to see you soon. Regardless of what the situation was, Paul had a deep desire to see his friend. He was in a dungeon in Rome. Maybe he was old, frail, suffering, and he was just cold and wanted a cloak. We don't know all the details behind this. But here's what we do know. In verses 10 through 13, Paul thinks about his closest friend in ministry. He thinks about Timothy. And one of the things that he mentions is all of these other friends that came alongside him in ministry as Timothy had done. One of the first 
people that he mentions is this guy named Crescens. And unfortunately, we don't know a lot about him. In fact, this is the only place in all of the New Testament that mentions this specific individual. Tradition says that Crescens went on to um, North Gaul from Rome up into the Northern areas where we typically associate with Galatia. If you have a Northern theory of the audience to Galatians uh, and planted churches in Lyons. There's also a tradition that says this is the man who became a bishop in Chalcedon, the place where we have the Chalcedonian creed that came into the church history. The second person he mentions though is Titus. And we know much more about Titus. Titus was a friend of Paul who he asked to establish a church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Titus rounds out the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. First and Second Timothy and Titus. There's a lot of similarities when you read First Timothy and Titus alongside of one another about church leadership, things that should happen in church services, corporate gatherings together. Those are two very similar, similar books because they're written to two very similar pastors in the faith and uh, friends of the Apostle Paul. The text says that Titus had gone to Dalmatia. This would be modern day Croatia, uh, Bosnia, and establishing churches and planting churches in that area. Uh, Luke alone, the beloved physician, Luke is mentioned at the end of this letter, personal letter for 2 Timothy from Paul. Luke alone was the one that remained and was there for Paul. Everybody else had deserted him. And we know a lot about Luke and how he traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys from the book of Acts. Luke is mentioned in two other places. He's mentioned at the end of Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon. There's a lot that we know about Luke from the gospel of Luke and as the writer of Acts too. These, these guys were companions in ministry. Uh, they did ministry together. Verse, at the end of verse 11, it says something interesting. It says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And I want you to just read, you're not gonna look at this passage, just read it on the screen if you can. If you want to, you can flip back. Uh, some of that type might be a little small uh, where you're sitting. Acts 15, 36 through 39. It's a very interesting situation that happens between John Mark and the apostle Paul. And it says this, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, remember Paul and Barnabas were the first uh, partners in ministry on their first missionary journey in the book of Acts. Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and let's see how they are. So the second of Paul's missionary journeys, he simply wants to go back and revisit all the churches that he had a part of planting on the first missionary journey and see how they are. Verse 37 now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. This is the same Mark that's mentioned here at the end of 2 Timothy. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. We don't know exactly what that looked like, uh, we don't know exactly what was said, we don't know how much time even elapsed in this, but whatever the situation was, Paul said, no to Barnabas, we're not taking John Mark with us because he wasn't faithful to us in ministry, he failed us. And so I'm not making that mistake again. There's such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. So Barnabas took John Mark, 
with him and Paul went in the other direction away from those guys on his own missionary journeys. Before heading out for a second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, but Paul thought differently. Paul viewed Mark more as a liability than as an effective, faithful ministry companion for his second missionary journey. And at the end of his life, Paul remembered Mark. Um, Mark is another one of these guys that's mentioned often at the end of Paul's letters. This is not the only letter. At some point in time in his missionary journeys, that relationship that was severed between Paul and Mark was rekindled. It was redeemed, it was restored. And now at the end of his life, facing his impending death, Paul thinks about his brother in the faith. He thinks about Mark and he wants him to come along with 2 Timothy. Death has a way of, of bringing things into perspective. I think some of the most coherent moments that we face and that we experience in life are when we go through the death of a loved one, a close loved one. If you've ever uh, experienced losing a parent, maybe a, a sibling, a brother, anything like that, it's just, it's hard to do what you normally do on a daily basis. Uh, life just isn't the same without them. Death has a way of, of bringing reality into perspective. It's a, it's a wormhole where you go into a, an eternal perspective for a time and things all of a sudden come, become much clearer the things of eternity become much clearer. Mark was mentioned again at the, at the end of Colossians, at the end of several of the other of, of Paul's letters because that relationship was restored there and he was helpful for him in ministry. Just about all of these were close friends of the apostle Paul, except for one. You guys caught it at the very beginning, Demas. It says this about Demas. He loved the present world. He deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica. That word in the Greek for deserted is a very strong, very um, uh, just active, uh, strong word to describe that Demas left him, deserted him and never came back to him. It's the same word that's used by Jesus on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the same word that Paul uses for deserted. Uh, speaking of Demas, for Demas, the love of the world transcended his love for a friend. The phenomenon happening all too often in our world, in our culture today, right? Uh, oftentimes we see friends that all of a sudden they just step out of our lives, guys with guys, girls with girls, because all of a sudden they fell in love with somebody. And no longer are there going to be those close friendships that you once had. And it doesn't need to be that way. Um, C.S. Lewis has another great quote here and a thought from his uh, essay on friendship. He says this, he says, those who cannot conceive of friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise or an elaboration of eros, that's a, a word for romantic love in the Greek language. By the way, the one word for love that's not used in the New Testament that we know of in Greek is eros. It's the romantic love. It's never used in the Bible. Um, those who cannot conceive of friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise for an elaboration of eros, romantic love, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. 
Lewis says, the rest of us know that though we can have erotic love and friendship for the same person, yet in some ways, nothing is less like friendship than a love affair. He says, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends are side-by-side, absorbed in the same common interest. Lovers may have naked bodies. Friends have naked personalities. They are totally open before one another. Again, lovers stand face-to-face, but friends stand and walk side-by-side. There's a difference between friendship love and eros, romantic love. And I would encourage you, if, if you're engaged, if you're looking for somebody to be married to, I would encourage you to marry your best friend. But there will be a best friend of the same sex that's gonna be different than the best friend who is your spouse. And I, I can't explain that other than to say God creates those relationships as very deep and abiding. Number two, friends see the same truth. Friends walk side by side, number one. Friends see the same truth, number two. Not only did Paul think about his friends as this letter closes, but he also thought about one of his worst enemies, Alexander the coppersmith, the metal worker, your text might say. Look down at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, great evil. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed our message. This might be the same Alexander that's mentioned in Acts 19. You're gonna come to a a context there where Paul was being persecuted for the faith. We don't know for sure. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul wrote to Timothy that first letter about an Alexander at that time. And it says that he had handed Alexander over to Satan. It's, it's such a common name in the first century that we don't know if it's the same person or not. All we know for sure is that Alexander showed Paul a great evil and did him great harm in his ministry. And I want you to make a special note about what Paul said about Alexander. At the end of his life, Paul does not retaliate. He does not get revenge on him. He simply hands him over to the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It reminds us of Romans chapter 12, repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Paul has such a a strong trust in the sovereignty of God and his care for him. He's not gonna get entangled in, in revenge factors. He's not gonna take actions into his own hands. He's simply gonna trust that God's gonna work out what he wants to work out in his timing, either in this life or in eternity. And he gives it over to the Lord. Uh, look down at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. You're gonna hear a lot of uh, similarities between the end of Paul's life and Jesus's life here. All deserted me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Very interesting metaphor. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. At the end of his life, again, Paul sounds a lot like Jesus. Paul's version of father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Sounds like this, may it not be charged against them. That word charged is a, a legal word in the Greek. Legitsamai is credited to him. May it not be counted against them like a defense attorney. Paul appealed for mercy in God's perfect judgment, even against those who did him wrong. He didn't want that to be counted against them. A lot of commentators will see a direct reference at the end of 2 Timothy chapter four to Psalm chapter 22. Again, that's the Psalm that you read the Psalmist saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone deserted Paul in his life. Luke was the only one that was there who was remaining. In Psalm 22 verse 11, it says this, the trouble is that there is none to help and so the psalmist cries out to the Lord. 2 Timothy 4, 17, Paul was rescued from the lion's mouth. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 21. The psalmist prayed, save me from the lion's mouth. Either Paul was placed in the arena and very physically the Lord preserved him from death by lion, or this is a metaphor. He's picking up on a lot of the same themes that the psalmist prayed and that the Lord experienced himself when he was crying from the cross. Those of you who know me, you realize that I'm, I'm not an extrovert, okay? I don't like to be like the center of attention. Every week, you guys, like one of the hardest things for me to do is to stand on center stage. I like to, uh, I like to get out of the way a lot if I possibly can. I don't, I don't love the attention. In fact, a lot of times I kind of run from it uh, in many ways. I'm much, much more comfortable behind the scenes doing things. Um, I get recharged by retreating, having quiet time, going away, reading a book. I'm not gonna be the loudest guy in the room, in the center of the room. I'm probably gonna be off in the back somewhere, maybe having like one meaningful conversation. To me, that just, that's more significant. Uh, my friends tend to be much more fewer in number. I, I could say I have a lot of acquaintances, but I have very few that I would call good best friends. Um, one of my best friends is a guy I worked for up in, up in Wisconsin. And it was interesting how our paths crossed. His name is Paul Cicero. And the thing that brought us together that has kept us together over the years too is uh, um, just a, a love for golf. I showed up at this golf course just wanting to learn how to play golf, to work and find a job at a golf course. And up walks this guy, Paul Cicero. He gives me a job picking range balls as a teenager before I could drive. Um, got me a job as an assistant professional. Eventually gave me a good reference for a golf program that I finally got into. But I wasn't I wasn't looking for a friend. What brought us together was something different than friendship. I didn't, I didn't show up at Oakwood Golf Course one day saying, man, I wish I could find a, a really good friend out here. I showed up just wanting to play golf and to enjoy golf. And that's the thing about friendship. Great friendships don't start by looking for friends. Great friendships start by finding a, something common, um, a like love, a, a, a common interest, a common hobby, something like that. Lewis says this, he says, friendship arises out of mere companionship. When two or more companions discover that they have in common some interest, some insight, or even a taste which the others do not share. He says this, he says, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, 
what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Um, Emerson has a, a really good essay on friendship. And he's asked this question. He says, the, the question of a friend is, do you love me? And that means this, do you see the same truth that I see? Uh, Lewis says, people who desperately want friends might never make friends because the very condition of having friends is that you should want something besides friendship. There needs to be something there that unites you or brings you together. Friendship must be about something. And I love this quote. Uh, Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Paul united with other people who had the same interests. They had the same desires. They had the same truth. They were all going in the same direction. And they wanted to go in that direction together. Um, He realized that Timothy had the same direction, the same desires, the same goals. And so they went in the same direction together. And, and what happens at the end here is just a list of people who share the same truth. They all believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. They all saw the miraculous grace of God in their hearts and in their lives working in a specific personal individual way that could impact other people in the same way and could bring together common interest for a common good for what God wanted to do through his church and through his kingdom on this earth as the expansion of his glory would go out and the truth of Jesus would be proclaimed and the truth of the gospel. The people that Paul mentions at the end of these letters are are all like-minded believers linked together with one common interest. And that's that the grace of God might be proclaimed truthfully and clearly to the hearts of individuals who desperately need it and then to link arms with those individuals in a very special way. Look at verse 19. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Again, Eubula sends his greetings. Pudens, Linus, Claudia, all of their brothers. The Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. Uh, Friendship cares little about social status. Friendship cares little about what family you are from, how many generations it goes back, how successful they were or you are. Friendship doesn't care and um, your, your income, your low class, your middle class, your upper class. Friendship is beyond all of those things. Friendship is beyond a superior and an inferior. It's beyond the uh, relationships of husband and wife, brother and sister, father and son, mother and daughter. Friendship goes much deeper than those things, and it doesn't care about those things. Um, Friendship cares very little about the differences in ethnicity, race, or class. The real question of friends is simply, do you see the same truth? Are you going in the same direction as I'm going? And God gives us uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to develop those relationships. Couple points of application. Number one, God designed friendship as a means of overcoming the sinful world. God designed friendship with one another as a means of helping us to overcome this sinful fallen world. Bonhoeffer put it this way, who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Sin demands to have a man or a woman by himself or herself. It takes you away from friendships. 
The more isolated a person can become, the more havoc sin will wreak on their hearts and on their lives. God designed us to walk in community and in relationships with one another. God called us to pray together with one another, to confess sins to one another. You cannot, you can do it in isolation to God. It is designed, confession is designed also to do it in the context of a close community of friends with one another. He designed friendship to keep us accountable, that people know us sometimes even better than we know ourselves. And we give permission to say the hard thing into our lives. One writer put it this way, the little knots of friends who turn their backs on their world are the ones who really transform it. The little knots of friends who turn their back on the world are the ones who really transform it. Throughout history, friendship has been men with men and women with women in this kind of a context. No one will know you as good as your comrade. Nobody knows you as good as your band of brothers. And if you don't have that brand of brothers to fight in this fallen world and to equip you to go forward with encouragement, with accountability, you are dead already. You are gonna fall. God has designed close-knit friendships for us in our walk with him that we might get the encouragement and the accountability that we ultimately need. And you see that all throughout, not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. Number two, Jesus redefined all of history in terms of friendship. Jesus redefined all of history in terms of friendship. And if, if you want to, you can turn back to John chapter 15. This is the last uh, couple of verses that I'll read here, John 15. John 15, verse 12 and 13, it says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Um, friendship is, a, is an interesting dynamic because in almost every situation, I might say that I'm, I'm friends with Bill Thrutchley and I would say that I sought Bill out, I found Bill. But give life a couple of different years give me a, a few years younger, I might never have come to Tulsa Bible Church. I might never have uh, come to Tulsa in the first place. I might never have met many of you that are even here today that we've met and we've struck up friendships with. Um, if you look at it that way, you will soon discover that friends really aren't made, they're discovered. Uh, you don't choose your friends, your friends are chosen for you. And through the providence of God, he brings the people into your life that he has designed to be in your life in those moments for your growth and to bring you closer to him in his providence and in his grace and in his knowledge. Friendships are not made, friendships are found. They're discovered when two people who have a common interest are going in the same direction. And so single guys, here's what I'm gonna to say to you. Uh, walk with the Lord Jesus as tightly and as closely as you can. And then one day you're gonna be walking so fast and so hard after Jesus, you're gonna look over and you're gonna see, hmm, that girl, Victoria, is doing the same thing. She's walking after Jesus too. And I never noticed that she was doing that. And girls, you're gonna be walking with your girls and serving the Lord, following after Jesus. And you're gonna look over and you're gonna see a guy over there. 
Logan loves Jesus. That might be somebody that the Lord has brought into my life. Jesus redefined all of life and every, all of history based on friendship. And no greater love has this, that a friend would lay down his life for somebody else. And he calls you and I friend. And it's just as much that we ultimately learn the truth about Jesus and respond to him as that God chose us for this friendship. Uh, both are true. Um, I've asked Derek to, to come back up and uh, to sing a song here as we close about the friendship of Jesus. And I wanna leave you guys with just a, just a couple things before as, as Derek is coming up and getting ready. Number one, guys, what other guys do you have in your life who you would consider true godly friends? Are you doing the things that you should be doing to pursue that relationship? Are you, do you have that common aspect that has brought you together? And are you walking with the Lord in that friendship? Who do you have in your life that keeps you accountable? Who do you have that would, you would get to the end of your life like the apostle Paul did in 2 Timothy and you would say, come to me soon, come quickly. Ladies, who do you have in your life? Another woman, maybe older in the faith, who can guide you, who can walk through life with you, who can teach you about the things that she's gone through to equip you and to give you the wisdom so that you don't make the same mistakes. You can learn from other people's mistakes and learn from their wisdom in those things. Guys can do the same thing as well. Who do you have that you know so well that actually knows you better than you know yourself at times that you would call a close and a good friend. For all of us, just because you're married to another person that doesn't leave you off the hook for saturating yourself and getting to know a true friend in the faith. Guys with guys, girls with girls. There's something about God working in that context. Titus 2 gives us a great admonition. Older men, find a younger man and disciple them. Older women, find a younger woman and disciple them. And friendship will take off as you both pursue the Lord. Let me pray. You've been listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.